The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. To whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This has to do with the ongoing life of the believer after salvation. That at salvation all our sins are forgiven, we're cleansed, we have eternal life which can never be lost. But as we continue after salvation, we still sin. And it's necessary to be cleansed of that sin because any sin breaks fellowship with God. And it also stifles the sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, which produces spiritual growth. So we have to make sure that we constantly stay in fellowship, which means that we need to uh, admit our sin to God, and He cleanses us, and then we are restored for forward momentum. So let's bow our heads together to pray. I think the kids went out for prep school and teen class. And I think there may be a couple of people who might be blocked by the camera back there. So if anybody wants to sort of shift around uh, while we're having prayer, you can do so. Just be quiet. Let's pray. Father, again, we express our gratitude to you for all that you have provided for us, that you have supplied abundantly for this congregation. And in the last 18 months of uh, our existence, you have taken care of so many things for us. And we recognize that all that we have and all that we are is due to your grace provision. Father, we thank you that we have your word, that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, and that it is through your word, the light of your word, that we see light, that it is your word that provides the frame of reference for understanding, evaluating, interpreting the events of our lives, and it gives us an understanding as to where we are going. Now, Father, as we continue our study on the foundation for living that you have given us in your word, we pray that you would focus our attention again on your word, and that you would use it through the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit as he fills us with your word to understand how these principles apply to our lives, that you would encourage us, strengthen us, and challenge us with the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Most of you may have noted that we're testing something this morning. We're testing the air conditioning. It started to get a little warm, and we just cranked it up, so uh, maybe we'll cool down a little bit, but it may take us a week or two before we get that worked out. And, of course, it's fall, so it won't be long before we will just have to work with the heat. So always a learning process. A couple of questions I want to address this morning. I want you to think about rhetorical questions. I don't want anybody answering right off the bat. What is it that shapes your thinking? 
Have you spent time thinking about that? I know that many of you have. Some of you haven't. I remember one time talking with somebody, and I said, what exactly is your philosophy of life? The response was, well, I'm not a philosopher. Well, we all have a philosophy of life. Some people have an inconsistent uh, philosophy of life that hasn't been thought out, and it just has to do with whatever makes them uh, feel good at the moment. Uh, Other people have a rigorously thought-out philosophy of life that's been inculcated in them through parental training or a coach or military or something like that. But every decision that any of us makes in life, the values, the priorities, the uh, way we conduct ourselves, the way we handle obstacles, the way we face uh, opposition, the way we deal with a disappointment, the way we handle uh, grief and loss, all flows out of that general frame of reference that comes from a world view. And there are basically two world views according to the scripture. The Bible says that you either think like man thinks or you think like God thinks. It's very simple. Now some people will say, well, there's hundreds of different ways to think. No, there's basically two. There's the way God thinks and the way man thinks. We call the way God thinks divine viewpoint. This is the unified viewpoint that is expressed to us in the Scriptures, in the 66 books of the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation. And it is a unified view of life. In contrast to that, there is a, there is a human viewpoint. This is made clear in Proverbs 14.12, that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Now that word translated way in the Hebrew there is a word that means a path or a road or taking a particular direction. And it emphasizes the fact that in life we make choices. You choose which way you're going to go, the path that you're going to follow, the direction that you're going to take. And that you have an option. You can do it God's way or man's way, and man's way ends up in death. This emphasizes a principle that we need to begin any endeavor in life with the end in mind. For those of you who came in the front part of the new church this morning, you notice that we're activating that principle, and as you saw all the desserts laid out on the table there, we're beginning with the end in mind. We may not be having lunch, but everybody will be satisfied with all the desserts ahead of time. We have to begin with the end in mind. Moses recognized this when he gave his parting speech to the nation Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, at that time we have Moses parting words to the nation Israel. This is the not the Exodus generation, this is the conquest Generation. This is the generation that will go into the land under Joshua. And so Moses gives a parting speech. There's a rehearsal of the requirements of the Mosaic Law that is the Constitution that is going to establish the framework for Israel's life. And there's a reminder of all the stipulations that God put in the law, the regulations, the ordinances, the statutes in the law. And this is to define the way of life that will characterize the nation Israel as a kingdom of priests set apart unto God. But included in that document, there are statements of warnings to the nation if they are disobedient. God specifies the blessings for the nation, but also that there are uh, warnings of discipline if they disobey Him. But they are given the option in Moses' speech to... Live according to God's way or man's way. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, Moses says, I call upon heaven and earth as witnesses today against you. Now that phrase, heaven and earth, is not talking about the physical solar system, stars and galaxies, and the physical planet earth. Those are terms that refer to the inhabitants of heaven and the inhabitants of earth. It is a recognition that these decisions are right at the center of the angelic conflict. I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. 
Now the focus of this part of this series is on foundations for living, how believers are to live their life to to grow to spiritual maturity and the basis that, that God gives us in his word for doing this. In the Old Testament, that basis was the Mosaic Law. And what Moses is challenging them is you have a choice to make. And it's a daily choice. It's an hourly choice. We, we don't just make a one-shot decision, walk an aisle, dedicate our lives to Jesus and do anything like that. It is a moment-by-moment decision. Are we going to choose life or are we going to choose death? That's the end result. Are you going to choose to walk according to God's Word? Or are you going to walk according to your own viewpoint, human viewpoint, whatever system of human thought that may be, whether it's consistent or inconsistent? The issue boils down to your volition. We need to begin with the end in mind. Whenever we make decisions, it's going to lead us towards one path or another, and that is what Moses laid out for the nation Israel at that point in their history. Now we see how this works out in the nation Israel, and the more I study the Old Testament, the more I see something that was just just brilliant in the mind of God in the way He lays out the Old Testament, because it's so different from any other so-called religious book in the world. When you look at the Old Testament and you look at the life of Israel, what is happening within the framework of this nation and the way it is given to us is, at a national level, a picture for us of what takes place and transpires in the life of the individual believer in the church age. And just as the Old Testament nation was given a choice and that if they Uh, followed the Lord, followed His Word, and applied it, there would be blessing and prosperity, or there would be cursing, and there would be judgment and suffering by, by association. And we see it work itself out through the history of the nation. That first generation went into the land, and they followed the principles laid out in God's Word. There were a few mistakes here and there. You had the sin of, of Achan, where he didn't follow the Lord, and there was divine discipline. And eventually that conquest generation sort of uh, petered out in terms of their, their obedience, and they began, as time went by, to compromise until they reached the end of uh, their obedience, and they just started letting the Canaanite tribes live in the land. And God judged them for that and told them that he was going to leave the Canaanites and certain numbers of the Canaanites and Perizzites and Jebusites and the other uh, Canaanite tribes in the land to test them, that this would constantly be a source of testing for them to see if the nation would obey God and apply the principles of, of the Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments to worship only God, to do away with all idols, to stay away from the paganism of the culture or not. And, of course, we know that although there were a few periods in Israel's history when they obeyed the law and they applied the law and God blessed them under David and uh, under the, in the early years of Solomon there was tremendous blessing and then, uh, then there was a failure. And by the end of Solomon's reign, God's going to discipline the nation. And there was a split that occurred because they failed to apply the word. And so it split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is known as the kingdom of Israel. The southern kingdom was known as the kingdom of Judah. Nothing good was ever said about the northern kingdom of Israel during its entire existence. King after king after king was described by the same phrase, that he did evil in the eyes of the Lord and followed in the, son, in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king in the north who led the rebellion against uh, Rehoboam in the south. And eventually, God made... Uh, came through on his promises to judge the nation and the northern kingdom was taken out under divine discipline in 722 B.C. and they were destroyed. After that, there was another period of, for lack of a better term, revival or a return to the Lord under Hezekiah. It was not a not the most uh, profound time in Israel's history, though, in terms of their obedience to the word. The most profound time of consistent obedience, at least at a governmental or national level, in terms of the leadership that was given to Israel, occurred under, uh, under uh, Josiah, and this is covered in 2 Kings chapter 23. 
Now, I don't want you to turn there. There's too much there. I'm just going to summarize this. All of this is a way of illustrating the principle of doctrinal orientation from the Old Testament. Josiah became the king when he was eight years old, just a young boy, but he had tremendous positive volition towards God. And I don't know how much doctrine he knew at that point because there wasn't a knowledge of the word at all. In fact, they didn't even know where the Mosaic law was. It had become lost. The book of the covenant got buried somewhere in the temple and stuck back on some shelf and had been gathering dust for over a hundred years. So nobody really knew about what God had promised in the Mosaic Law. There's no doctrinal orientation whatsoever. There's no understanding of what the Bible taught or what their Bible taught in the Old Testament at all. But they still have the temple, which, of course, has fallen into tremendous disrepair. And due to their uh, absorption of paganism, they had erected idols in the temple to Baal and the Asherah, and they had developed a whole priesthood for the Canaanite gods and goddesses that was functioning inside the temple in Jerusalem. And not only that, but it had fallen into disrepair due to the fact that several times there had been military incursions into the south under the fourth stage of divine discipline described in Leviticus chapter 26. The kings in the south had paid tribute or bought off these invading kings by taking the gold and the silver in the temple and melting it down and using that to pay tribute to these invading kings. They had taken the gold off of the doors and the doorposts of the Solomonic temple. They had taken some of the uh, furniture inside the temple and melted it down. And so it was just a a tragic place. It, it, It was run down. And when he was about 16 years of age, Josiah decided that the temple needed to be uh, refurbished. They needed to go in and just overhaul the whole place and clean it up. And in the process, Hilkiah the high priest suddenly discovers something buried behind a bunch of rubble in a back room, and it's the law of Moses. And so he sent it to Josiah. And Josiah sat down and started reading it and realized once again who Israel was. See, they didn't even know who they were as a covenant nation to God anymore. They didn't know why God had called them as a nation. All of this had been lost in the history of Israel. So they had no orientation to history. They had no orientation to reality. They had no orientation to what God was doing in their life whatsoever. And as a result, the whole nation and society was in a state of collapse. As a result of reading the law, all of a sudden Josiah, as the king, is now becoming oriented to reality. He's becoming oriented to history, so he knows that God has a plan and a purpose for the nation Israel. God has a destiny for the nation Israel. God has stipulations and requirements and obligations for the nation Israel. And the same thing is true for us. God has a plan and purpose for each believer. But the only way you're going to know that is by studying His Word. God has a destiny for every believer, an eternal destiny. But the only way you're going to know that is if you study His Word. God has obligations and responsibilities that are incumbent upon every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the only way you're going to know that is if you study the Word. God has ways in which society is supposed to function. But the only way we're going to know that is if we study His Word. The Bible is very clear about social institutions. We call them establishment principles. But from the first uh, divine institution, which is human responsibility to the second divine institution, which is marriage, to the third divine institution, which is family, to the fourth divine institution, which is human government and basically policing our own society, to the fifth divine institution, which has to do with separate uh, entities, national entities. Each of these define what man has to recognize socially in order for there to be stability in the human race, in his nation, in his country, in order for that to be perpetuated. And these principles are true for everybody, believer and unbeliever alike. But the only way we come to know these things, ultimately, is through the revelation of God's Word. You don't really know about... You can, you can through empiricism and rationalism, you can approximate 
uh, recognition of the importance of individual responsibility and accountability. You can perhaps understand something about the importance of marriage and family. But historically, if you go out and you look at cultures that develop under pure paganism, whether it's in Africa or tribes in South America or out in the in the uh, uh, in Southeast Asia or in the Pacific Islands, you look at those cultures, and the further and further away they get from the Word of God historically and from its roots historically, the more marriage breaks down, the more family breaks down, the more they get into ideas related to marriage of polygamy, they get into matriarchal types of, of marriage setups where there's there's not a husband and wife or mother and father uh, the father comes along and he's only responsible for getting the, the mother pregnant and then the child is raised by the mother's family and the father's just not there. All of these things represent a deterioration from the truth and the more you get away from God's original design the more those societies break down and fall apart. That's why one reason why this whole issue on same-sex marriage is fundamental is if we're believers and we're going to be salt and light in our society, which means we act as a preservative and as the source or, or the conduit for truth into the culture, then that necessitates certain kinds of decisions when it comes to the voting booth because that's how we, we as believers impact the culture around us. Well, all of that had broken down in Israel. There's no orientation to the Word of God anymore. But there was no knowledge of the Word of God. And so this is rediscovered, and Josiah begins to make some changes. And as a result of discovering the Word, it transforms his governmental policies. It transforms the structure of government. It transforms the values that are being worked out in society. And this was most evident at the temple. They went into the temple and they cleaned it out. They cleaned out the uh, idols to the Baalim and the idols to the Ashtaroth. They cleaned out all the priesthood and he executed every one of them. Capital punishment. He took all these priests out and they stoned him to death. And then they went to the high places where the uh, temple prostitutes, the male and female temple prostitutes, would ply their trades up in the uh, the groves in the high places. And they tore them down. And when we come to Second uh, Kings twenty three twenty five, the divine viewpoint commentary on on Josiah is that now before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. That word for turning is the same word that, that is used in the Old Testament for repenting. And that's what repentance means. It means to turn away from human viewpoint and turn to God. It's not an emotional term. It's not a term of, of remorse. It is, a, it is a term related to focus. Same thing when you get into the New Testament, utilize the Greek word metanoeo. It has to do with changing the mind. It is uh, making a decision to go from negative to positive, to trusting, trusting God. So they, he turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. This was God's last expression of grace, to the nation Israel before he took them out. Despite everything Josiah did, the people never became positive. You can't enforce the obedience to God's word and positive volition from the top down. You can't, you can't enforce it through law. The people uh, can't uh, respond spiritually through some sort of intimidation or pressure from an external authority, even though he did so much to restore Israel. And as a result of that, God blessed the nation and prospered them tremendously during his, the, the period of his reign. When he died, they just slid right back into idolatry because the people never changed. They never oriented to the Word of God. The king oriented to the Word of God, but the people never oriented to the Word of God. And as a result of that, the nation slid further and further into idolatry and paganism. They were taken out in divine discipline in 586 B.C. There was a 70 years of the Babylonian captivity. After they, and only a, a remnant 
return to the land from Babylon at the end of the Babylonian captivity under two or three different returns beginning in about 536 B.C. And when they returned, they were so fearful of idolatry as the cause of their failure that the hyper-religious sensitive crowd, the legalists, began to focus on all these different ways they could make sure they didn't violate the Mosaic Law again and didn't go into idolatry. So they went from one type of religion to another type of religion, a legalistic observance that again just enslaved people to, but to a different kind of religious system. And this was just uh, external religious legalism. Now when Jesus came along, he had a confrontation with that external religious legalism. And this is recorded in John chapter 8. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. Jesus is now in the temple area. Of course, the temple that we talked about earlier under Josiah was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, and it was rebuilt by Zerubbabel, and then under Herod, it was known as the second temple. The uh, temple of Zerubbabel was uh, rebuilt. It was under, not rebuilt completely, it was under a reconstruction project, and they were uh, making it more magnificent than it had been since the days of, of Solomon. And Jesus is teaching there, and there's a crowd of Pharisees and Sadducees that are, are as, as typical. They're constantly challenging him on everything that he is teaching. And we come down to verse 31. After Jesus has been in this confrontation with this large crowd that includes the Pharisees, he then is speaking to a subset of that crowd, which is believers. And in verse 31, he says to those Jews who believed in him. He's got a mass crowd here. Not everybody's a believer. Most of them are Pharisees. But there is a group there that are believers. And so John makes it clear that in this next statement, he's not addressing everybody in general. He's just addressing those in the crowd that are believers. And he says, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And the point that he is making is to demonstrate that we are students of the Lord. That's what disciple means. It's not a word that is synonymous to believer. But if you're going to demonstrate that you are a student of the Lord, then we abide where? In his word. And as a result of abiding in his word, that is continuing in his word, studying his word, he says in verse 32, And you shall know the truth... And the truth shall make you free. Now, instantly in this section, we see that there is a correlation between the phrase, my word, in verse 31, and truth in verse 32. He's equating the two. That The concept of truth that he's appealing to here is not some relativistic truth that what's true for me may not be true for you, or this is true for me because it works for me, makes me feel good, but you have your truth that works for you and makes you feel good. That's the concept of truth that is popular today in our culture. This is a concept of absolute truth that is grounded in the communication that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and ultimately from God and is recorded for us in his word. So he says, if you know, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. He, he, in this passage, he's reiterating the truth that man is born in a condition of slavery. No matter what kind of political situation you are under, you are still a slave if you are a slave to sin. This is what he goes on to say in verse uh, 33. The Pharisees answer him and say, well, we're Abraham's descendants. Now, they were so caught up with their uh, racial heritage that they thought that just because they were Jews, physically, they were better than everybody else and were inherently free. So he says, we're Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. 
So another thing we note as we go through the passage that there's a contrast between knowing truth, which sets you free, but the slavery that freedom is talking about here is a freedom that is, uh, or a slavery that is related to the slavery of sin. Now, to understand this, it takes us back to a a basic concept we've taught already, and that is what is truth. Truth is the nature of reality. What is reality? Well, the Bible teaches that reality is what God made it. Reality has its source in the thinking of God because God in eternity past planned out all of creation so that every detail in creation interconnects precisely with every other detail in creation, whether it's the physical creation or the spiritual immaterial realities. Everything is interconnected. But only the mind of God perceives and understands everything totally, intuitively, instantly. He doesn't have to learn anything. He knows it all. The only way that we can learn about it is through either experience or through reason. And if we're not paying attention to what God informs us concerning his creation, then we're going to be divorced from reality to the degree that we're ignoring what God says about reality. So truth is ultimately grounded in the mind of God. It is, the, it is reality as determined by God as the creator. So God tells us that if we're going to have freedom, we have to align our thinking with his word. Another word for aligning our thinking with his word is the word orientation. We have to orient our thinking to his word or orientation to doctrine. Now, this begins, of course, with Jesus Christ. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if we're going to orient to truth, if our thinking is going to be founded upon that which is consistent with the reality that God created, it starts with Jesus Christ. He said, I am the truth. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And, of course, no one can come to the Father except by me. This is the foundation and salvation that we can't have a right relationship to the Creator unless it is through Jesus Christ, who is the Redeemer. He paid the penalty for our sins. So we have to orient to that truth, which starts with salvation. If you don't start with salvation, there can't be any orientation to truth. All other systems are fraudulent. Now, some seem to fit better than others seem to fit. And that because, that's because the, devil, the devil's a realist. He knows what reality's like. So all the systems he promotes have to include a certain amount of consistency with reality or they won't work at all. Most, most evil, the most evil systems that we run into are the systems that are 95 or 96 or 97 percent true because it's the other 2 or 3% that creates the problem and distorts everything else. So only the Bible claims to have absolute and total truth. And we see this in Jesus' high priestly prayer, what's called his high priestly prayer, that he prayed for the church, for his disciples, and for the church the night before he went to the cross. And in that prayer, he prays to the Father, sanctify them by means of your truth, Your word is truth. Sanctification is just another word for the Christian life and Christian growth. How do we grow as believers? It is by means of your truth. So if we're going to grow as believers, it has to come through an orientation or an alignment of our thinking to his word. If we're not aligned to his word, then we're living in a deceptive world that is divorced from reality. And no matter what else is going on in our life, we are divorced from reality. So this is our fifth spiritual skill that I've been emphasizing in this basic series. And they're foundational spiritual skills. We're only going to cover these first five before we go on to the responsibilities of our priesthood, which will begin uh, next week. The first spiritual skill is learning to confess sin. We have to learn to do that. We have to learn to admit our, 
our sins to God and be cleansed so that we can recover spiritual growth, fellowship with God, and the Holy Spirit can continue His sanctifying uh, ministry. Then we have to learn to walk by means of God the Holy Spirit. And that's the command of Galatians 5.16, and it works in conjunction with the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is uh, more precisely being filled by means of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 5.18. And then we get into the three foundational skills for growth. The faith rest drill, which we discussed two weeks ago, grace orientation, which we covered last week, and doctrinal orientation. Faith rest drill focuses on the dynamic of the walk, which is faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. The emphasis in the faith rest drill is mixing faith with the promises of God. We mix our faith with the promises, the procedures, and the principles that are laid out in God's Word. And we walk by means of the Spirit, the second spiritual skill, and we walk by means of faith. But faith is never directed to just itself. It's not just faith alone. It's not just faith in faith, rather. It is faith in an object, and that object is expressed as God's Word. And this is why we see a connection between the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. These three skills interconnect and overlap with one another. So that in grace orientation, we understand that the principal dynamic in God's plan is grace. It's grace for salvation. It's grace for spiritual growth. In God's grace, He supplies everything, which means we have to approach God on the basis of humility and uh, the fact that He provides everything. It's based on who He is and what He's done and not on us. True humility develops into teachability. Teachability means we have to submit our thinking to the challenge of God's Word. It is the opposite of arrogance. So in grace orientation, the emphasis is on submission to the authority of God. This was why Moses was called the most humble man in the ancient world. is because he was the most authority-oriented individual in the ancient world. And when you become authority-oriented to the Word of God, you realize that the Word of God is going to dictate to us how what, the nature of reality, how to think, what to think, what reality is like. And we see this developed in passages such as 2 Timothy 3.15 through 17. Now, most of the time, we just go to 2 Timothy 3.16, but I wanted to go back to verse 15 for a particular reason. Paul is directing this to his young protege, Timothy. And he is reminding Timothy of the centrality of the Scriptures in his life. Doctrinal orientation, in other words. And he says to Timothy, he reminds him of the impact of the Scripture in his life growing up. He says, from childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, what were these Holy Scriptures that he knew? They were the Old Testament, not the New Testament. When Timothy was growing up, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So, Paul is focusing on Old Testament, the Old Testament Scriptures, which, he says, are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So don't fall into this trap so many Christians do that, well, we're living in the New Testament, we're living in the church age, the Old Testament really doesn't have any value for us. This shows us that the Old Testament has tremendous value for church age believers. It is not the primary source of teaching for church age believers, but it is the foundation for everything that is in the New Testament. And then Paul goes on to say in verse 16, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. More correctly, we know that means all Scripture is God-breathed. It has its source in God, not in man, but in God. And it is profitable for four things. For doctrine, the Greek word is didaskalia, which means teaching or instruction. Second, for reproof. Elenco, to challenge our thinking, pointing out what's wrong. You know, people today don't like that. Whatever you say, don't tell me that I'm thinking something wrong. You're going to offend somebody. You're going to step on their toes. They don't want to come to church and be told that their thinking is wrong. They don't want to hear doctrine. They just want to feel good. They just want to come and be motivated a little bit and encouraged and told how wonderful they are. Of course, we don't really believe in that here because that's not biblical. Uh, it moves from reproof to correction. 
to straighten people out, to give the reproof focuses on this is where you're wrong, and correction is this is how you straighten it out and get right. And then the last phrase is instruction in righteousness, and the Greek word there is paideo, which or paideia, it's the noun, paideia, and it means discipline. Not, not another, another word that's not real popular today is discipline. Discipline in righteousness. That is experiential right, righteousness, application of the Word of God in fellowship and, and the advance in the spiritual life. And the purpose is then given in verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, that's whole, be what God intends you to be, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Well, let's go back and just point out a couple of things related to what verse 16 says. First of all, we learn from this that Scripture is designed to teach. It is didactic in nature. It's designed to instruct, to inform, to give data, to give facts, to give uh, structure to our thinking. As a result of that, we can say that if the purpose for Scripture is to teach, then the purpose on our side is to learn. We are to learn, we are to submit ourselves in authority to the teaching of God's Word in humility so that we can learn what God has to say to us. Now, this isn't learning for the sake of learning. It's not learning for the sake of intellectual stimulation or the acquisition of new information in and of itself. It's not so that we can go home and have uh, doctrinal notebooks that are three inches thick and have a whole row of them on our shelves as we've taken all these notes over the years. It is designed to, toward an ultimate goal. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just pointing out that's not the end in itself. It's not about how much we know, ultimately. It's how much we apply. But you always hear somebody come, come along and they say, well, you know, if we just applied... Uh, more of what we knew. We know so much already. If we just applied 20% instead of 2%, we'd all be so much better. But it's such a shallow way of approaching knowledge because in every area of life, and you know this, whatever area of life you're in, whatever your area of expertise is, whether you're in construction or whether you're a doctor or whether you're in finance or whatever your field is, you always know a tremendous amount more than what you actually use. And that's the way it is in life. The more we learn, the more we're going to apply. But we never seem to apply at any given time more than maybe 1% or 2% of the entire body of knowledge that we have in whatever that field is. But the more you learn in your field as a whole, the more you're going to apply. So it's not about, well, we just need to apply more of what we know. It's we need to learn more and more and more. And that learning challenges our application but it doesn't stop with learning it moves towards application that's the point that James makes in the last part of James 1 is that we are to become it's not prove yourselves doers of the word it's become it's the Greek verb genomai to become something you weren't before it's to become appliers or practitioners of doctrine practitioners of the word that comes from orienting and aligning our thinking to the word which is doctrinal orientation so that's the purpose of instruction is to help us to know what reality is what God's standards are what his values are so we know what we're to align our thinking toward the second thing that scripture is given for is reproof to point out the areas where we're wrong headed where we have wrong beliefs where we've picked up uh, ideas that sound good from the culture around us, from our parents, from our teachers, from our peers. They sound good, and they may even work for us, but they're not truth. They're not biblical. They're not part of, the, of God's Word. So reproof points out all the areas where we're wrong-headed. Correction points out what the correct path is in opposition to the error. error. And then... Discipline. We are to discipline ourselves in righteousness. We're to discipline ourselves in the application of the Word. And that's just that ongoing training that God is giving us. That's another possible translation of paideia. Instruction, it's, it's a poor translation. It should be training or discipline in righteousness. So this provides the foundation for going forward. Now... As we go forward, what did I say earlier? 
you have to begin with the end in mind. What's the end? Well, whether you like it or not, the end is given in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Romans 8, 28 is a promise familiar to many of us. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. There's the goal. From eternity past, God set a destiny for you. That's what predestined means, by the way. Pre means before, and destined has to do with your destiny. So before time began, God determined your destiny. And your destiny as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be like Jesus Christ, to be conformed to His character. That's what the attributes of the fruit of the Spirit all define is the character of Jesus Christ. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, against which there's no law. This is the character of Christ. So that's your destiny. Now, whether you like it or not, God's taking you that way. Now, sometimes we want to go in a different direction. We get into divine discipline, and God's got to beat us upside the head with a two-by-four a few times to try to get us back on the right path. But the path that he has set before us is conformity to the character of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we get there? We get there through walking by means of the Spirit, walking by faith, but the faith is directed towards an object, and that object is the Word of God. It is only through the Word of God, which is called the mind of Christ in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.16, It's only by learning the mind of Christ that we can learn to think as God thinks and thus orient our thinking to God's thought and reality. So as we advance in the Christian life and laying those foundational skills, we start with confession of sin, we move to walking by the Spirit, and then we have three that interconnect and overlap, and that's the faith rest drill, we walk by means of faith. Grace orientation, we recognize that everything we have is from God, and we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, and as a result of our humility and teachability, then we put ourselves under the authority of the teaching of God's Word, and God's Word then addresses every area of life so that we learn to interpret the situations and circumstances in our life in such a way that we can handle them biblically. I'm going to give you two really quick uh, applications of this from Scripture, illustrations of this in Scripture that you can, you can think about because they show us how, how people who are doctrinally oriented handle, handle problems. The first comes from David. We talked about David two weeks ago. David faced Goliath. David shows up. He's been out with the sheep. His dad uh, sent him to his older brothers who were with the army of Saul. And he shows up, and the whole army of Saul, every one of these people is just cowering. They can't handle this for over uh, a month now. Uh, Goliath has come out every day shouting this challenge, and nobody's going to go forward and fight Goliath. And Saul's out of it. Nobody's thinking biblically. Nobody's doctrinally oriented. David comes up, and as soon as he, he hears Goliath shout, shout this challenge, he says, Why do you let this uncircumcised Philistine say this? See, he's doctrinally oriented. He is so oriented to what God has said in terms of the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic law that he's interpreting the circumstances around him within the framework of what God has revealed. And that enables him then to know what the solution is because he's doctrinally oriented. The next situation I want to... You can go home and read about this again. It's the... Uh, episode in Joshua chapter 2 when the two spies go in to check out and do a recon on, on Jericho and they go to Rahab's tavern and Rahab is going to Rahab the prostitute is going to hide them uh, because the local uh, Gestapo or gendarmes are headed to to get these spies and throw, throw them in the POW camp and so she sends them up on the roof and she's down there and of course this is where she doesn't have a whole lot of doctrine. She's a believer, but she doesn't have a lot of doctrine. And as soon as she comes under the pressure, we see the fact that because she doesn't have an orientation to, to reality through doctrine, she tries to handle the problem through lying. And, you know, God recognizes we're all, we're all failures and we make mistakes like that, so it uh, doesn't create a major problem. But the doctrinal orientation in the story is what's going on with the two spies. 
And it's just hidden right in one little verse. Most people just read right past it and don't recognize what's going on. While she's down the front door uh, telling a lie to the local Gestapo that, no, they've already left. They took the road out of here back towards the east. And you, if you hurry, you can catch them. Now, these guys, and I want you to put yourself in this position. You're hiding. Your life could be at stake here. You're hiding from the local police who are searching for you, and they're banging on the door downstairs. And so you're taken up on the roof with, uh, there's a lot of flax and bundles of flax and storage stuff up in the storage shed up on the roof, and you're hiding there. Now, what are you doing? Are you going to run over to the parapet and just kind of listen to see, hear, overhear the conversation? Or are we going to sit here in prayer and say, you know, Lord, protect us. We don't know if they're going to come in or not. How would you respond? Well, if we look at Joshua 2, 7 and 8, the, the, the men, that is the, the, the local uh, constabulary that's out trying to hunt down the spies, uh, is misled by Rahab, so they take off and pursue them by the road to the Jordan to the ford to the fords and as soon as those who pursued them had gone out they shut the gate and in verse 8 now before they that's the spies lay down she came up to them on the roof what have they been doing while she's down there uh, trying to fend off the Gestapo they're laying out their bedrolls they're getting ready to go to sleep remember they're part of the conquest generation they're not like the spies at Kadesh Barnea who were scared to death of the giants and the fortified cities of the Canaanites, they learned the principle of the faith rest drill and doctrinal orientation while they're wandering around in the wilderness. And so while she's down there dealing with the police, they're totally relaxed, totally oriented to doctrine because they know that God has promised to give them the land so that they're not up there praying, they're not up there listening into the conversation, trying to figure out if, if, the, if it goes wrong, they can run out the, you know, jump off the back of the roof and run away. They're up there getting ready to go to sleep. They have complete relaxed mental attitude because they're oriented to grace that God's giving them the land, and they understand His plan for Israel, and so they are consistent with that. That's what doctrinal orientation does for you. You can interpret the events, the obstacles, the challenges, the problems in life biblically and handle them correctly through God's solutions. Let's bow our heads together in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning, to be challenged by it, to be refreshed by it, to focus on the fact that you have provided everything for us and that your word gives us absolute truth. And as the psalmist said, it's in your light that we see light. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Your eternal life is based not on what you do, but on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And Scripture says that the way to have eternal life is to simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to trust Him, to rest in the fact that He did all the work, and there's nothing we can do to add to it, nothing we can do to maintain it, It is simply a matter of faith alone in Christ alone, trusting Him for salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.